Side Hustle Show 247, how to shortcut your financial freedom with short-term rentals. What's up, what's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because nobody else is going to do it for you. This month, we're focusing on recurring revenue business models, highlighting a few unique ways to build those consistent monthly income streams. Last week, for example, we met Sam Gonzalez, a full-time police officer who's built his subscription box service to $15,000 in monthly recurring revenue. This week's guest has a different approach. She's built her financial independence early on, like age 29, age 30, through real estate and specifically through the peer-to-peer rental site, Airbnb.com. So today, Ziana McIntyre's business rings the cash register in a couple different ways. The first, she's a mini real estate mogul with five properties that she rents out on Airbnb. And the other way she makes money is through what Airbnb calls co-hosting. Essentially, she acts as the property manager for other people's vacation rental listings and earns 20 percent of the nightly rate with very little risk and very little upfront capital required. Now, under that model, she's got another 15 units under management and is currently earning around $15,000 a month between the two arms of her business. There's a little bit of seasonality at play here, but overall, she's diversified to the point where it's become a very predictable revenue stream. So I invited Ziana on the show to learn a little bit more about how her business works. And if I'm being totally honest, to see if it was something I could get into myself, like could I buy a vacation home and make money on it or at least break even on it when I'm not using it? This conversation didn't really go the direction I thought it would, but still ended up provoking some thought on my end, and I think it will for you as well. So stay tuned to hear how Ziana evaluates her properties, uh, how her co-hosting arrangements work, and how she automates and outsources most of the day-to-day management of her portfolio. Notes, links, and a free PDF highlight reel that you can download are at sidehustlenation.com slash Ziana. That's Z-E-O-N-A. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Ziana after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. I own five homes. I have a condo in Boulder, Colorado, where I live now. And then I have four homes that are single family homes in St. Louis, Missouri. And then I manage with my team, we manage probably 20 homes right now. It kind of fluctuates between like 15 and 20, depending on the season. Tell me about the management business. What does that mean? How does that work? Yeah, so we call it co-hosting. Essentially, you just help owners that have homes that don't want to deal with kind of overseeing everything. You know, some people just want to like go on an extended vacation for a month, six months, and they just don't want to be worried about a cleaner not showing up or not having enough toilet paper or a guest not getting into their place if they can't be attached to their phone or email. So, I mean, that's completely understandable. Okay. So yeah, our company, it we cover all of the guest communication. We do all of the cleaning scheduling. We'll order supplies for the homes. So like all of the different things, it's a lot more stuff than you'd think, but like dish soap and laundry soap and sponges and everything. We'll oversee any maintenance that happens. Like if the toilet's plugged, it needs to happen like yesterday, not right. in three days. So just kind of all that stuff to kind of make it very peaceful for the owner. And at the end of the month, we send them little invoices of like, this is all the money you made and stuff for taxes. So it's pretty turnkey for them. Not so much for us, but it's such a cool side business. And it's actually, I think, very low hourly work for the outcome that you get. So I think it's a really cool thing if people are interested in working in hospitality. And it's something you can do from your home. So do you charge as a percentage of the of the booking fees? Yes. We take twenty percent. That's what our company does. 
Okay. So higher than a traditional property manager. Cause like there's a lot more turnover. There's a lot more to coordinate, but yeah. to be completely hands off, like I could see the value proposition for the homeowner as well. Yeah. And here's a way to get into the Airbnb game without having to go buy a place of your own. So that's an interesting angle. Yeah. I've heard someone call that like synthetic equity. It's kind of like having equity in a home, but then you don't actually have to do anything about it. So it is really cool. I think it's like a really nice low risk way to like give it a try. And also after owning homes, I think like at first it's really exciting, but I think some of the like home ownership magic has like worn off on me. And I'm thinking like, yeah, it's awesome. You don't have to deal with any of the maintenance and like big expenses and responsibility that a home has, but you can still like kind of cream off the top. How did you end up getting those clients for those homeowners that you proactively pitched? Were they people in your network? What did that kind of ramp up period look like? Yeah, everything's been word of mouth for me. I had been doing Airbnb in Boulder from like 2012 to, I mean, till now, right? But I had done it for like four years and everybody knew that I did it, you know, just like all of my friends. And I had trained a ton of people in town that were like trying to get started and just turned a ton of people onto it. So it was really easy when people started having questions, they would always come to me. And yeah, I just had a friend who was like, too busy. She worked full time and had a few homes and she started me on it. And then, yeah, clients just kept rolling in. So this side business of mine really exploded and it's only been going for a year and it's just kind of really taken over. It's like its own animal now. Okay. So, you, so you're doing the massage school thing and mm-hmm. you start by renting out a spare room in your own place. You start by renting out your whole condo and go crash with friends. Like what, what was like your first booking? All of the above. Um, (laughs) No. So uh, yeah, I had a roommate and I had like a two bedroom. I started renting my room and then I would rent her room when she was gone. And I was just kind of giving her a cut for putting up with me. And I was just like testing the system. And then after she left, she was only there for a couple of months. So I knew like I had this like lead time to try it. And then otherwise I'd have to get like a real roommate or just keep up with the Airbnb thing. And I just never needed a roommate again. So then I had a different listing. I had three listings. I had one for each room as like private rooms. And then I had one for the entire apartment. And then I would just go stay with friends or a boyfriend or go on a trip or do something. It was pretty much like, I just didn't have the luxury to say like, oh, a booking came in and I'm going to turn it down. So there was a few years that I lived like that, where it was like, you know, cash is king. I'm out. I'll just figure it out, you know? And I figured out all kinds of trades with friends in town for babysitting or different things to stay in their homes. So, I mean, I don't know if everybody would want to do that, but like for me, I didn't have to have a real job. So like it was totally worth it. Yeah. That's an interesting way to go about it. And then you said, okay, well, I'm going to need more inventory if I want to scale this thing. Yeah. So way back in the day when Airbnb was like pretty much unknown. I mean, Airbnb started in 2008, but I heard about it in 2011. And I still think like so many people didn't know about it until like maybe two years ago. So back in the day, yeah, most people just operated out of apartments and they were just subletting. And like, there were no city rules about it. It wasn't written up in leases yet against it. So it was fine. Like I negotiated with each one of my landlords that like we had a deal that I could sublease. And I just said, you know, I travel for business, whatever. And so it's definitely a gray area. And I don't really recommend people doing that now since Airbnb is so known and it'd be easier to be caught. 
But yeah, I did. I kind of just did it that way. So I ended up going and getting another apartment. Oh, since you were, you were leasing the apartment at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh yeah. I was just, I was like a super broke student (laughs) when I first started. Okay. Totally. And it's, it's allowed me to build up to this place of being able to buy a bunch of places, which was like a dream I never thought I'd be able to do in a very short period of time. Airbnb has given me a lot. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So, okay, so if you're going to play the sublease game, make sure that the landlord is okay with it, unless you're really comfortable asking for forgiveness. Yeah. What was the first home you bought outright for the purpose of, of Airbnb? The first apartment I bought was the one I live in in Boulder now. I bought that in September 2014. So I'd been Airbnb like two years already. Okay. And I still had another place and I would just go between the two of them. So one was a rental and one was the one that I owned. And I kind of just did that for a long time. So it was like trying not to stay at friends as much. And I would just go between the two apartments. So, I mean, it's kind of just like the hustle that I had. And it it was also very hard at that time to be back and forth and like always living out of a suitcase. But I just kept clothes at both places and like made it work. But there was enough demand even at that time to stay reasonably booked. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see how Airbnb has grown. Back in the day, there was barely anyone doing it, but barely anyone knew about it. And so there was definitely an interesting thing where people started to get worried that like, oh, too many people are listing their places. But I'm like, no, that means so many more people are traveling on Airbnb because they know about it. So it's like, there's always an opportunity to be scared. And there's always an opportunity to think of all the other possibility that's coming with the changes. You know, and so I just think I always was focusing on the positive outlook. But yeah, I mean, if I look at my records over the years, like the same place would rent for way more summer after summer. Oh, okay. Just because it's been more established or there's more. There's more demand. There's more people. And yeah, I mean, I think this year is a little bit more than last year. It's not like a crazy jump. But in the early stages when it was like 2012 to 2013, it was like night and day. And it might've also been that like, I knew better too, what, what I could get away with, what I could charge, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, it's like a learning game okay. for sure. Well, help me out. Say I'm looking to get into this game. What's like the evaluation process for a property? Is there, you know, specific areas you avoid or types of properties you avoid? Like let's kind of break down what that might look like if somebody wanted to say, okay, this sounds like a good side hustle for me. First, you want to figure out if you're going to try to buy or if you want to manage, because that totally changes things, you know? But if you're, it sounds like you're talking about buying, right? Should we talk about it from that angle? Yeah. Let's, let's say this is a a unique angle on the real estate investing thing. And this is what I want to go for. Yeah. So I'm really about profit margin. And so a lot of people want to buy something where they live and know, and I can tell you from my examples, I can just give you a quick example like the condo I own in Boulder is only a one bedroom and it's like 300000 And it rents with Airbnb. I can probably get in the high season like 4000 a month and in the low season, maybe, I don't know, 1900 to like twenty five or something like that. But I have homes in St. Louis that I bought for like $52,000 and that home does like between 1600 to like 3000 in the summer. And so profit margin over there is way better, even though it's a two-bedroom house. And you'd think like a two-bedroom house in Boulder, like that'll bring in all this money, but it's going to cost you $800,000 to buy. So I, I don't think that's like one of the big things about real estate, just because you like to live there 
doesn't mean it's a good place to invest. Okay. So I think that's like a thing to look at is the profit margin. And there's a lot of opportunity in the Midwest. There still is. And then the South. So I can definitely go into like specific places that I've heard about, but I haven't done research on all these markets because I've sort of changed my strategy. I'm less buying now and I'm more managing. So it's just a little bit different. But yeah, I would look for a market where the profit margin made sense. And then the very next thing is looking at the local laws because that's kind of been a big thing that's changed in Airbnb is that now everybody knows about it and they're trying to put some sort of tax on it. And most of the rules make it so that you have to be owner-occupied. So that's how it's like just gangbusters for people that want to be co-hosts because there's tons of people that are owners that have full-time jobs. They don't even want to think about being Airbnb managers, but they want to go travel and they want to make money off their place. So like that's never going to dry up. That's just getting better and better. But you can't own 10 homes in the same place and say that you're the <laughs> owner and you're occupying okay. part of the year. Sure. I've tried. You can't do it. <laughs> so that's sort of the thing that's that's kind of changed it a lot. So there are definitely places that don't have the rules yet, but you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, the local laws, that, that can be scary because that could change at any time or even like if it's a... Yeah. If it's a condo complex or apartment complex, the association could change the rules at any time and kind of pull the, the carpet out from under you there. Yeah. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. I was going to ask, what would you consider a good profit margin or a good ROI on your on your down payment or whatever? We can talk about where the capital comes from and, and that stuff in a minute. Yeah. So 
I don't know how many places you can still find this, but when I was buying in St. Louis a couple years ago, I was always looking for 10%. I wanted to be able to make 10% of like the total what I paid. So I'm trying to just put this in like simple terms and not be all real estate-y. But say I have a house that's $52,000. I want to make at least $5,200 a year on a long-term tenant. So my worst case scenario, I want to know that I can do that. So the homes that I was buying, people are renting them between like 800 a month to like a thousand or whatever, something like that. And I knew I could recover that. So with Airbnb, because I wasn't sure exactly how much I was going to make on Airbnb and whatever, just so happens it turns out to be double and I'm doing like 20%, which is freaking awesome. But in case that ever changes, you know, I wanted to make sure my worst case scenario was still a good, good situation. Okay. So hey, worst case, I can do a long-term lease that kind of matches the 1% rule, or it's going to, like you said, that 10% return. Yeah. And then anything on top of that, the vacation rental stuff is kind of like gravy returns. And I, and in your case, it, it doubled. So that yeah. $52,000 property is bringing in 10 grand a year in profit. Yeah. So, I mean, these homes, I sort of realized that like, wow, you can pay off a whole house in like four to five years. So that's really nice. Yeah, that's nuts. You know, well, okay. So you said it's going to take four or five years to pay it off. Did you just say, well, gosh, a $52,000 house, I could come up with that down payment. But, you know, some of the, you know, the $300,000 condo or the $800,000 vacation house up at, up at Lake Tahoe, that is a little bit harder to swallow if you're trying to come up with either owner-occupied financing or investor financing. Totally. Where did you get the money to build this portfolio? Yeah. So the first house, I I got private lending. I talked to a friend who was in real estate and I knew he had the money and I just got brave. And I asked him for the money for my condo. And I got really lucky because at the time I bought the condo for 162 And all of a sudden, right after I bought it, we had a big boom. And so now it's worth like 300. So I, I just got lucky in there. Yeah. So he lent me the money and then I had a loan with him. So I had the down payment, but I got a private loan because I knew that I probably didn't make enough. And because I was only working for myself, it was going to be tricky to get a loan. Okay. Would that be considered like a hard money loan or just like a private loan? Yeah. Hard money loan. I mean, he's a private lender, but if you technically say private loan, that's like what people think of that they can get from a bank. It's not a bank. You know, you go to a person who just has the cash and then you guys work out the terms. We still had a contract and a promissory note and like everything, but it's just a little bit different. Okay. Is it a 30 year note or is it like, okay, now I got a balloon payment that's coming due? Yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) The balloon payments. I don't recommend that. Now that I've done it, I just don't think that's the best way to go. And and since I've gone through when I was at a space where I was buying homes a lot, because I bought like all five of my homes in like two and a half years or something, everybody started going like, oh, I want to give you money. Like you should buy a house with me. I have a couple people I bought houses with. So it was like a lot easier to find money <laughs> at that time. So that capital source has kind of dried up for you? What's What's going on there? Or why do you think that is? It hasn't dried up for me. I just decided I don't know that I want to buy homes right now. Okay. Why is that? People still come to me. I just find that these homes, they make really good money. The return is great, but some of them are like 100 years old. 
Some of them are a little older. Some of them are a little younger than that, but they're right around there. And there's so much maintenance. I mean, it's just, they're like little babies and they always need something. (laughs) And I think that I've just gotten to a place where I'm realizing like, oh, I think the money would be like so much chiller if it was just sitting in like a mutual fund at Vanguard and I never had to think about it. You know what I mean? So yes, it's like real estate can have the sexy thing and it can have the big gains and there's a lot of possibility, but there's a whole realistic side to it that I think a lot of people like don't see. They're seeing like the shiny part. And so I still think it's worth it if you're like young and excited and want to do it. Yeah. So that's why I think like the whole co-hosting angle is awesome because you really have like none of that risk. And if you're done with the contract with the people, you just like wipe your hands and walk away like you're done. So I don't know. It's been an interesting ride for sure. But I, I think that for now, I'm not buying homes. Fair enough. Yeah, well, for that, a bit. It's you got to you got to align it with your goals. And hey, the mutual fund is not going to be calling you in the middle of the night with, you know, some horrible repair problem. But it's also probably not going to get totally. you 20% a year. No, not necessarily. But, you know, you only need so much. So it all depends on how much, you know, once you get the amount of money you need there, then it's making enough for you every year and you can just kind of retire. I like that. <laughs> That's the dream. So it sounds like you've had some some headaches from this business. I'm, I'm curious to hear like what what's like the worst thing that's happened or like what you know what are like the most annoying things that happen as a result of like being the owner of record. I'm mostly just being a whiner because I'm super lucky. <laughs> like I haven't had huge stuff, you know, cuz I I can imagine Like you could have crazy floods and like, I don't know, every single appliance could go out or something crazy. Like I did have some issue with a toilet that backed up and then the basement got like poopy water. And so that ended up costing me like $2,800 because like insurance only covered so much. Okay. So that was a little bit like sad, but it's not the end of the world and it's money I already had, you know, so I didn't have to do anything like crazy about it. You just sort of look at the bottom line at the end of the month and go like, eh, I guess we didn't really make money this month. Right. Oh, well, that's fine. But it's it's just knowing like I have like a Rolodex like in my head of all of the homes and what they need next and when I'm going to do it. It's like these schedules that are like constantly living in me. So I can't imagine the people that have 100 homes you know, I know these people. I think they're psychotic. <laughs> like, how much is enough, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I also would say it's super different when you have a long-term tenant and you just have like a management company that you pay and you're not dealing with it all the time. Yeah, I think that's how those people have, you know, 40 doors or 300 doors or whatever. You can have a lot of places if you're not involved in the day-to-day. Yeah. But I think with Airbnb, like you can't be a slumlord. You know, like you have to have a certain quality, not, not saying that all those people do that, but it's like a long-term tenant will let like the fridge make like a weird noise for five years. Like they don't care, but an Airbnb tenant will tell you about every like little spot on the carpet or the wall or a crack somewhere, or like they will tell you everything. So you got to keep the place up. Yeah. You're running a hotel basically. Yeah. High expectations. Yeah. Fair enough. No, I'm, I'm, that's actually cool to hear that like, hey, look, I don't need to have a portfolio of 10 or 20 properties to support me, to support my family, to support my lifestyle. It's like, how much, what's enough? Yeah. But maybe from the selfish standpoint, 
<laughs> like if I wanted to do this, I've like always loved up at Lake Tahoe and kind of the Nevada side as a, would be a good tax shelter. So if I'm looking at that, could I acquire something owner occupied and then not necessarily be required to live there year round and rent it out the other part of the time? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the first thing I would do is figure out what the city is. So if it's still city of Lake Tahoe, like look on their website because these websites always have all the regulations. So there may or may not be short-term rental regulations. Sometimes they call them like transient rentals <laughs> or vacation rentals. You can okay. look it up. But anything, they'll have like rental licenses for long-term tenants too. So it's usually in that section. But they'll have the rules there. So every place is different. Some places say like, we want you to live there at least 120 days or okay. something. I don't know that they really have somebody there who's like ticking off how many days you've yeah. been in the house. In Boulder, they remit the taxes for us. So Airbnb like collects it and we never see it and they send it directly to the city. So I don't know how much information they're getting from that. If it's saying like, this is your address, this is their name, this is how many days they rented, or if it's literally just saying like, it's this person or this ID and this is the money. Like you don't know anything about it. So, you know, I wouldn't really mess with the city by trying to like bend the rules too much, but so it's kind of hard to know what they know. Yeah. But I also know that the the city here has like one person who's doing all the vacation rentals. So they're not like driving around and like looking at houses and they're definitely not ticking off how many days you've yeah. been renting. So it kind of just depends on like what works for you. When you're looking into this how do you estimate the prospective income from it? Do you just look at other vacation rentals in the neighborhood and say, okay, I think I can get $200 a night? Yeah. So there's two ways. There's a website called AirDNA. I think they're really cool. They have, like, you can type in any city. Well, in the US, I think they have some foreign places, but I'm not fully sure how much detail they have. But any city, and then they give you like some free report, and then you can buy the report from that oh, okay. area. And it has like tons of analytics. Like some of it's like way over my head, but it's really helpful. It could show you like a range and what time of year and how many places there are renting and like, you know, their occupancy and all, just all kinds of stuff. So that's helpful just to get like a little idea of the seasons or different things. And then I usually put the address in on Airbnb search. So if you put the address in, it'll show you like your little area and then you can see what everyone's charging right now, Okay. but it's a little bit harder to see for like other seasons, you know? So I generally just charge around what other people are charging and then I play with it. So I usually have my calendar open for like the next three to six months. Beyond six months, I have a hard time keeping track of that. So if there's going to be like an event, you might not charge enough. Anything that's out like two months is going to be some ridiculous price. Like I'll put it at a price that I don't even think I'm going to get, you know, but I just try for the highest. And then as it gets closer, if it's not booked, I'm lowering it. So, you know, that covers my bases essentially. Okay. But yeah, some people will book a year in advance. Do you have a rule of thumb for your expenses? Because as the owner, my understanding is you're responsible for the electricity and the water and the garbage and all this stuff, which is, you know, in a long-term rental, you normally pass that on to your tenant. Totally. There's not really a rule of thumb. You kind of just find out what things cost in that area. Yeah. It's just something else to bake into your operating cost. Absolutely. So in Boulder, when I had, I had two apartments, the like last two that I was living between, 
when it's an apartment, it's like almost nothing. So I only pay for electricity and Wi-Fi in both of the places. I don't do cable TV. We just do like Google Chromecast or you could do Apple TV or something like that. So literally like the expenses were like $19 a month for electricity and 50 bucks for internet. So it's not like it has to be this crazy thing, but pretty much you could ask anyone in the town and they'll tell you what their bills are. And if you're buying a place, you can ask the landlord for the last like estimated bills. I always have everything kind of estimated and I I bump it up to like worst case scenario. So I know that like what my numbers are going to be. Yeah, I imagine, so again, looking up at Tahoe, I mean, you could have air conditioning expenses in the summer, you could have like a $400 heating bill in the winter, like it could be, it could be ugly, or it could be significant. Yeah, I know, even my tiny homes in St. Louis, I feel like, what is it, three to 500 a month in my monthly expenses, like not even talking about any sort of mortgage, because some of them are paid off. But yeah, it's just, you're thinking about like with a house, it's like sewer and electricity and lawn. And, you know, like I have like seven different utilities or something. I'm like, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) You know, nobody told me about that. So it's just like the things you figure out, you know, water and yeah, there's just a bunch. So, oh, trash. Like when you're in a condo, you don't have that stuff, but you have an HOA and they can just like destroy you. So it's really hard to say what's the better thing. Yeah. Hundreds of dollars in HOA dues every month. Like there's... Or just having them say like, you can't do it anymore. Sorry. Yeah. And that's where <laughs> you're kind of your point to buying, buying at a price where, okay, even if I have to turn this into a long-term rental, I'm still going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the best, best is to buy like a duplex or a multiplex because if you own the whole building, then you only have to do like one lawn and one roof and one structure so you can get more out of it. And then you don't have anyone who can tell you no. But a single family home, it's almost like more work than it's worth. I think I've figured out now. Okay. Yeah. How do you manage all this stuff? So you're obviously not living in St. Louis and you're doing, I don't know if all the properties that you manage are local to Colorado, but it's like... How do you manage all this stuff from from afar? Like if we're three hours away from this place up in the mountains, how do you check people in and out and, you know, let the cleaners in and out and all this stuff? I try to automate stuff as much as possible. So as far as like check in and check out, I have lock boxes or a little like touch pads and on all the homes, because I think nowadays people actually want to just feel like it's their place. If you walk them through the home, they're feeling like a little like walking on eggshells. Of course, it depends on the type of home. If it's really upscale and it has a lot of like weird gadgets and things, I would say you still need to give them a tour. But for most places, we send them out like a house manual ahead of time and they have one in the home when they arrive. And that will tell them all the like little quirks if there's anything. I'd say the short answer is like you just need a team. You just build a team. So for my places in St. Louis, when I was kind of still just like doing everything myself, because nowadays I've like, automated things a lot more. So I'm not as involved in everything. But back in the day, I just hired like a local area manager. And she was the one who managed like all the cleaners and she trains them and she cleans homes herself. And then she would be the one that I would call that it was like, oh, this guest is saying like they can't get into the house. Can you meet them there? And so we just worked out like an hourly and she kept track of that. And so you just kind of have your like go-to people. And I built like a little community of handymen people that I would call. And there are definitely times where you can feel a little bit helpless. 
you're so far away, there's an emergency, nobody's yeah. answering the phone, and you're just like, I can't do it, you know? I, there have been a few times, very, very few for as many, like, hundreds of guests that I've served over the years, you know, probably yeah. thousands at this point. But there have definitely been a couple of times where a cleaner didn't show, and I couldn't get anyone else there, and I had to just be like, I'm sorry, we'll refund you, we can get a cleaner there tomorrow, like... You know, it's not what you want to do. You want to get someone there immediately. You want to make it never have happened. But it's sometimes that's the only thing, you know, it's still someone's house and it's not a hotel and it's not a perfect shiny business. Like, I think sometimes people take that risk in Airbnb when they're traveling that way. Yeah, stressful, <laughs> especially being like two states away and trying to figure it all out remotely. Most times it works so well that it's totally worth it. So I, I guess it also has to do with your threshold of risk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it sounds like, okay, so we, you built these teams and these systems for your own properties and said, well, now we have all this in place. We can offer this to other owners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not that hard. You know, I mean, for one property, you probably want like a, a main cleaner and a backup cleaner. You know, you want one really good handyman. And then you you start to like call the random people when something happens. You know, you're like, oh, I need a very specific plumber for this or an HVAC guy. But you like look that stuff up when you need to, you know. So it sort of just happens organically. It's really not that much of a team. Do you think it's an appropriate business for people to get into if they have no property management experience of their own yet? If they just like, hey, I want to get into hospitality. I think I have maybe the, the project management chops to, you know, get this done or coordinate all these different players. And I, I'd love to make that 20%. Yeah. I mean, I think a good way to get experience is to rent out your own place. So even if you're just gone for the weekend, or if you have like a spare bedroom or a basement that you can convert into like a rental, try to get some experience like on your own dime, just so you're not yeah. messing someone else up. If you were really interested in it, you know, you could maybe get a job as a property manager and like work with a traditional real estate agent that manages homes or find some people that do co-hosting like my company does because they're propping up everywhere. I hear about there's people in town in Boulder doing homes. So it's really exciting to hear about. It's definitely a thing. And I'm hoping to eventually release some sort of online courses or things like that because there's definitely some quirks. There's things you need to know. It's not just turnkey. It's yeah. hospitality and you, you kind of need to be creating an experience. Now, do you do VRBO and some of these other rental sites too? Or is it like, look, I'm exclusive on Airbnb? I just talk about Airbnb because <laughs> I love them so much. No, I, I do HomeAway VRBO. They're the same company. I work with a company called Guesty who manages my all my guest communication. And they have a connection with this company called Rentals United. And they supposedly give us access to like hundreds of other websites like Booking.com and Expedia and whatever. I have had the worst time trying to get all of my things connected. So I'm not currently working with those sites, but I do think Booking.com and Expedia provide a lot. There are thousands of other rental sites. I just don't know how much traffic they actually get. HomeAway VRBO gets a lot, and it recently got bought by someone like Expedia. I don't know, but it was a big booking agency, and so I think they're even getting better. 
But I got to say their website is really rough. <laughs> it's so hard on the back end to work with. And it just makes Airbnb like just the most amazing thing. So I still think you need to be at least on both of those if you're going to do it because they pull different people. VRBO Homeway has been away. They've been on a company forever. Yeah. You know, they were the original guys. And so like a lot of older people know about them. We get a lot of Canadians through them. I don't know. It's just a different clientele. Yeah. Another, well, another host I talked to said like half of her bookings came through VRBO. And I was like, oh, wow, I did not expect that. Yeah. I think it also depends on the kind of home you have. I think Airbnb's bread and butter has been condos. Yeah. And VRBO has more homes. And so if you have more of a luxury space, I think it's especially good to have on VRBO. Okay. Well, very cool. Ziana, it's ZianaMcIntyre.com. Thank you for joining me. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Yeah, I would say the number one thing is to just be really flexible. When Airbnb started changing and everybody was starting to get scared about the regulations coming in and the owner occupancy and all those rules, everybody would love to ask me. It was like the number one question. They're like, are you really scared? What are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to keep doing it. You know, I'm going to just figure it out. And I have. And now I do this whole co-hosting thing. And I never would have thought that's where I was going with it. But there's always opportunity. And you just kind of have to keep changing with the times. So I think like if you're a hustler, definitely just keep your eyes open, be flexible, and see if you can change before the rest of them. Very cool. Ziana, thank you so much. We'll catch up with you soon. Thank you. All right, my top takeaways from this call with Ziana, number one, figure it out. There's this great video that Brian Harris put together, and it says basically your only job as an entrepreneur is to figure it out. And that's exactly what Ziana did with her Airbnb business. Started out, hey, I'm renting out my place. I got to go crash with a friend and, you know, had to do barter deals. I'll babysit. I'll do massages. And beyond that, it was adapting to the market and then changing rules. And then it was building your team. And I really liked Ziana's call to focus on the cash flow and specifically the cash flow in your worst case scenario. What what happens if the rules change and you have to turn this thing into a traditional rental? Like, can you still make money that way? Is it, does it still make sense as an investment to do it that way? So buy right and make sure that you're covered in that worst case scenario and, and figure it out as you go. Takeaway number two is to take advantage of the piggyback principle. So the piggyback principle basically states that whenever there are broad sweeping trends like Airbnb, like WordPress, like CrossFit, like the paleo diet, like essential oils, whatever it is, like there's an opportunity there. And at first for Ziana, the opportunity was to invest in property at really, really strong ROIs. And maybe those opportunities still exist in certain parts of the country. And later for Ziana, she saw an opportunity in then serving the community of other Airbnb hosts with her uh, co-hosting service or property management service. And she's done she's done this well enough to not have to get a real job and essentially be financially independent at a very young age. So you've got to ask yourself, what are the other trends going on right now that you can piggyback on? And takeaway number three for me is how much is enough? When I said at the beginning of the show that the conversation didn't really go the direction I thought it would, this is what I'm talking about. I was kind of surprised to hear Ziana say she's taken her foot off the gas because she doesn't need to keep pressing. She's got a great business going that more than covers what she needs to live and adding more risk and more complexity at this point isn't a high priority. I've actually been thinking about this concept of enough lately, especially when it comes to 
new investments and new projects. Like if this works out, does this make a meaningful impact on my quality of life or is it just another shiny thing to go and chase? So as always, curious to hear what you think. You can let me know in the comments for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Ziana. It's Z-E-O-N-A. And while you're there, you'll be able to download the free PDF highlight reel from this conversation as well. If you like what you hear on the show, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app to make sure you never miss an episode, including the next two thrilling episodes in our recurring revenue series this month. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet a gentleman who started a little side project in 2015 that's now doing over $400,000 in monthly recurring revenue. That's monthly, not annual. It's crazy stuff. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.